0: Regional Australia is full of possibilities. I think the way that things have evolved with technology, that this is the place for people to be if they want to have that career that they've always wanted, but they also want to have some space and some freedom and some quality of life, especially after Corona. I can't think of a time where space and freedom have been more highly valued. This is Life on the Land, a
1: Grazy Her podcast telling stories of women living in rural and regional Australia. I'm Sky Manson, your host for this really special summer series of Life on the Land, where the Grazy Her team pick their favourite episodes
0: so far and explain how the story touched or inspired them or made them think about something in a different way. Hi. I'm Shannon Dunn, and I'm in charge of subscriptions with the Grazier team. My favourite Life on the Land episode so far is with Grace Quest. Her story really resonated with me, and the familiar emotions that come with making a living off the land, contingency plans, harvest time, and the many obstacles that come with it. Grace is also so successful with her outside interests, I cannot help but feel inspired and energised by her. I already echoed the sentiment that any job is possible from the bush, but for
1: someone, So well-travelled and with such a wide variety of life experiences to say this,
0: it's no wonder Grace is one of our most treasured women of the land. So I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I did. We really didn't believe, well, especially David, I'm a bit more of an optimist, didn't believe we had a harvest until probably four weeks before harvest. And so then it was a manic kind of trying to get a truck driver and trying to get a chaser bin driver and trying to get all the staff that we needed to do everything that we needed. And we started then and David's in the road train and he's constantly on the road and I'm running around doing things. And the other day we actually just stopped and took a moment to be mindful and grateful for what we have. Because it's so easy when you're in the busyness of harvest and it is hectic. There is grain going everywhere. And because it was wet, we swapped from barley to wheat to get the wheat off, to get it in the shed because wheat really can be downgraded after wet weather, whereas barley's quite okay. Well, it takes a lot more damage to downgrade barley. And we just really took, and it wasn't very long. It was maybe 10 minutes sitting in the back of the cruiser out in the paddock before dinner. And we just kind of breathed it in. And it was just magic for those five minutes.
1: Oh, how was it finding staff and, and people to help?
0: Oh, bloody hard. Can I say bloody? It was bloody hard. <laughs> I advertised on the land. I advertised on Gumtree. So I'm talking paid ads, paid ads on Facebook and we just could not get a truck driver. That's the thing that made our harvest really difficult. So David has his road train license and that put him in the road train, but we're constantly selling on farm. We're making decisions through harvest and out here, If you're not in the 10 metres around where I'm sitting now, you don't have phone service. And so it made the logistics of our harvest really difficult. So David would drive the road train to the front gate. I'd meet him with a bottle of water and he'd say, I need you to call Jacko, who's our trader, and I need you to tell him, yes, we're going to sell that today. So I'd run down to the house, call Jacko and say, yeah, we're going to get rid of that 250 tonne today. It's made it really complicated.
1: Did you have lots of family come in and help?
0: Yes, we did. And that's the only way we could have gotten through. So my stepdad, Wes, is just one of those people that can do anything, build anything. He built our incredible pool fence. He managed the grain shed, which is probably 50 years old. And you've got to have a fair chunk of common sense and just figure stuff out. Stuff's going to go wrong and you've just got to figure it out. And he's been on that. David's younger brother, Duncan, who's at uni, he's been driving the header. And he's actually been in exams, but because of COVID, obviously he's doing them externally. So when he has an exam, his dad would, their dad would be on the header and Duncan would come into the house, do his exam, and then he'd be back on the header. <laughs> and they've been, they've been swapping back and forth. And then we've had some really great, we did get some really great chaser bin drivers. So a young bloke, Will, who came to us, took his annual leave for the year and came to us for three weeks and then he left and we got a young bloke Lockie who lo and behold actually went to school with Duncan in Armidale at Taz. but we didn't know that until Lockie turned up and they knew each other which was really cool. Um, So we've had a really great team and that really kind of positive energy has been so good because I think we probably even forgot what a real harvest was like. Mm. Last year everything that didn't die was sitting in the paddock and the decisions on the day were, is it a waste of fuel to send the header over that patch of land? Like, are we going to get any seed back to make it worth it? Or are we just wasting money on fuel? And when you're going through something like that and you've gone through something like that, dealing with something like this year, it just blows your mind. It's a, farmers have the shortest term memory. We really do. We, we, we only remember our last crop. We're only as happy as our last crop.
1: Well, for a little bit of context, you guys haven't had a harvest since you bought the property that you're on at the moment. So for the last three years, just paint a picture for me about about what that's been like.
0: <sighs> um, so before we bought Domain, David had built this incredible leasing operation out here where he was leasing multiple properties from all lots of different family members from an aunt, from his dad's cousin, from his grandfather and his father. And we had this incredibly thriving, successful business. And we bought Domang in 2017 with this plan of how we were going to pay it off and how we were going to buy our next farm. And we got delusional. We we could have never have known what was coming though. And after that... Oh, it's actually hard to talk about because it it has been really hard. And I, it, I wasn't emotional through the three years we were going through it. And now that we're at the other end and we know we're going to stay here, um, I don't know, we've really got our roots dug in now. Nothing's going to move us. I think it's a little bit sad to look back on what we've been through. But anyway, so 2018, we dry sewed thousands of acres of crop and it didn't rain for six weeks so we had a moisture profile but it didn't rain finally we got 16 mils that germinated a crop but that year really wasn't much and at the end of 2018 we were kind of like okay well we survived that that's the worst we're ever going to go through it was the worst year in 65 years of records on Domang that this family has ever seen and in 2019 it just got worse so it was worse again than 2018 i think we had 120 mils of rain for the year we had decided to get married in september because usually at this time of year in september you drive through the roads and it's like you're swimming in an ocean of grain like there is just over meter high crops either side of you touching the sides of the windows and it is just beautiful and we thought gosh when are people going to come to Domac? This is our one time ever that we're probably going to get these people here and we want to show them at its best. So we actually waited till September and David desperately wanted to get married earlier. I'm like, no, 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 we'll show them. You know, in September our crops are going to be beautiful and half of it germinated. Our heavier country didn't get wet enough to, ra- to germinate and the other half died. Um, so come our wedding, we were just a barren desert. We'd had no rainwater for a year. We'd had no rainwater for half of 2018 as well. So I was buying those four litre containers from Coles, two of them a week and kind of, which you go through a lot of them actually when you drink as much tea as I do. Um, That got us through to 2020 when we have just had to figure out now how to run this mammoth business. So out here, land costs are so expensive. It's $4,000 an acre out here was the last sale. And a header, our last header, we bought was $750,000 and they're nudging close to a million now. We won't be buying one for quite a while. 2020 was really just how to get us through, get this crop off and survive. Mm. <laughs>
1: uh, it's so hard to comprehend um, the scale of of the drought. But when you have just taken on this business and this enormous debt, you know, just the, the stress must just have been so exasperated.
0: Yeah. And I guess I grew up in drought a little bit. And so I kind of had that safety net that you realise once you've lived through them that it will rain again and you will survive. But my husband, David, hadn't lived through a drought. This this region here is such a safe agricultural region. In almost 100 years of his family being here, they'd never had crops die. Like nobody here living on doming had ever had to look out in the paddocks and watch their crops wither and die. And so not just for David, like there are neighbours here who are in their 50s and 60s and they were devastated mm. because it was a resilience that hadn't, been crafted here yet it wasn't something people had had experienced to develop that resilience
1: how close did you come to losing the place
0: we definitely it was a decision we made because there's no one else here and I think that's probably that that's pretty rare nowadays to be out on your own at our age Uh, we sat down and we decided an equity amount that we wanted to leave at and we talked to our bank manager, who we really love, which you don't hear very often, <laughs> and we said, look, he <laughs> Shelley, you're never going to have to come to us and say it's time to go, guys, because we know we want to leave with enough to go and start another business and start again. Honestly, if we hadn't had a harvest this year, we want to start a family. Like who knows what would have happened because that that really for us, Happiness and good mental health and starting a family was going to be our priority. And if the farm was going to stand in our way for that for a fourth year, then things were going to have to change. It really changed a lot in both David and myself, the drought.
1: In what ways?
0: Oh gosh, the drought has made me brave. So before the drought, opportunities like this podcast or styling for crazy her, or being a fashion stylist for labels, I would have balked at because I didn't want people out here to think I was too big for my boots or I didn't fit in or I was superficial or silly and I wanted to be taken seriously as a farmer and now I just think the people who love me know that I am equal parts farming and business and fashion and creativity And they love me for all of those things. Mm. And I've really learnt to block out the other noise.
1: It's almost a gift.
0: Uh, That is a gift. The confidence to live my life the way I want to live it is an absolute gift. And a really random sidebar to this is earlier in the year, I went on my own to the huddle, Mm. which one of your guests picked posted and it was really interesting to me and i don't know if it's just because i am self conscious about wanting to fit in and not wanting to ever offend anybody or seem set myself apart that a lot of the questions that the audience were asking were how did you how did you start this without worrying about what people thought and how did you ignore people saying negative things on social media and I was thinking gosh we all feel like this Mm. so wouldn't it be wonderful if we all just gave ourselves the permission to do the things that set us on fire and that that really started that process with me that realization of what have you got to lose like you could lose everything if you and David like you got married in that front garden and David has been here for 17 years and He's, like, the farm is named after his great-grandfather, his grandfather and his parents and siblings. Like it's, There's this huge legacy and if, if after all of that you're going to have to walk away from that, then you can sure as hell be brave enough to go and say yes to the opportunities that are offered to you.
1: It's such an exquisite takeaway, Grace, and you really have personified that this year with all of the projects and the opportunities that have come your way. What have been some of the highlights of 2020, other obviously then a harvest and a bit of rain?
0: It's really hard when you're a farmer to enjoy the other things unless things on the farm are going well because you live in it too. Um and so actually during harvest I've been just looking back and being really appreciative of all of the opportunities that I've had. And they my life is so varied. So Earlier in the year, I shot a billboard for a dental surgery. Uh, when the borders closed, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Australian both reached out to me and I've done photos for them. I have shot huge fashion campaigns for Gundawindi Cotton. They went online this year. Uh, Antola Workshirts, I shot their work shirt, latest workshop campaign actually in the first week of Harvest. Harvest came a week early and I got a little bit caught out. I still had a shoot for grazy hair and I still had an Anatola shoot and harvest, but thankfully, or not thankfully, it was terrible that it rained the first week of harvest, but it meant that I got to get my work done. <laughs> and priorities. Yeah, priorities. Hopefully, my luckily my husband doesn't know how to download a podcast of am <laughs> Um I'm trying to think of some, and I do a lot of branding images for businesses and artists, uh, interior designers. Yeah, I've just had the most massive year. And honestly, if the borders hadn't closed and I had been able to see my friends and my mum and go to the Gold Coast for the weekend, I, there's no way I could have done all the work I've done this year. No way.
1: Well, the, how do you describe your work
0: I call myself a storyteller. So I'm a writer, a photographer and a stylist. Sometimes clients come to me and they have a brief and I just shoot to that brief, package together their photos and I send it off. Or sometimes they'll come to me and I'll say, I need content and I have no idea where to start. So I'll sit down with them, go through their products and services, talk to them. And through that, I can give them a mood board that has their brand colours the idea of imagery they like, poses they like, what they should wear for a photo shoot, and then I go and shoot them. So that means that they have the confidence going into that photo shoot that they're going to have absolutely everything they need to represent them and their brand. Uh, Gosh, but anything, I get approached to do, to consult on a lot of things. So I've consulted on a lot of agribusinesses this year on everything from... Uh, one that's changed their name and their imagery to reflect something more agricultural and something a little less left-leaning, I really just help people tell their stories in the best way possible to connect with as many people as possible.
1: Did you think it would be possible to have this professional career when you first moved to Domain four years ago?
0: No way. No way. I thought if I was lucky and if I worked really hard that I would probably get a few freelance articles published. Um, At the time my photography was a bit rubbish so I did a lot of work to get that up to scratch obviously. Um, But it was just not ever something I was grown up with that something like that would be a possibility.
1: you did grow up on a farm. Can you talk to me a little bit about where you were and and what life was like as a kid?
0: So when I was very young, I grew up on a property called Doon and it was a sheep, cattle and a little bit of cropping. And gosh, we just had the best childhood. So from a very young age, our mum taught us to swim, taught us to do a snake bandage, taught us some basic first aid and pretty much sent us out in the world to (laughs) Adventure. All the
1: important things for an awful <laughs> bushwhacker kid.
0: <laughs> well, you know what? I could still do that snake bandage to this day. So she really cemented it well. Um, and we worked really hard. So we had a great childhood. We played every sport, but we worked really hard from a really young age. We mustered, we caught lambs for lamb marking. Uh, we helped with fleece testing. We had fun more merinos. And we... Drought fed. So, our grandfather left us this old Holden Rodeo ute when they left the farm and we took over. And my little brother, gosh, he would have only been four, he could just see through like the old leather steering wheel. We would drive this old Rodeo ute out to the cottonseed shed and we had buckets and shovels and we'd shovel from the giant pile onto the back of the ute and then he'd drive, barely able to see through the steering wheel, slowly out in the paddock and I'd be scooping the feed off the back and I think kids now that that was just life back then that was what our friends were doing on their weekends that was no different That's kids like that or I, I can't imagine our kids just heading out in the paddock and feeding a couple of thousand head of stock well maybe
1: like, if they have their snake bandage <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, as long as they've got their provisions <laughs> Nana Margie will be on to that very early on but yeah we had a great childhood. I know that when we were probably 17, 18, I had a conversation with my mum and she was sad. She felt like we'd missed out on something in our childhood because when I say we worked hard, we worked hard. It wasn't like we went out and we, we sat in the car while dad worked. It was we actually worked hard and we both now really struggle with switching off, which is really interesting. We'll, we'll just pack our time with everything we can do. So I've taken on uni. But she doesn't realise what a gift it was because she gave us all of the opportunities, the piano lessons and the swimming training and the hard work didn't hurt us, I don't think. If I look at both of us now and I'm incredibly proud of the person my brother has become, we are very hard workers and that work ethic and our resilience, 100%. Can be chased back to our childhood.
1: So, you grew up uh, out in Queensland and then moved to Gyra, which yes. would have been a very different yes. kettle of fish.
0: <laughs> Total. So, we moved to Gyra and we were still very young. I was maybe the 10, so I wasn't very old. And I remember Gyra, for anybody who doesn't know, is the coldest, greenest place that like, it's like Scotland, like it's beautiful. And we could run across this farm without shoes on and there was no prickles. We had complete improved pastures. We could run so many more sheep to a lot less acres and it was just brilliant. And I went to school at PLC in Armadale, and I loved school. I wasn't very studious, but mum put me into the boarding and my girlfriends were just the best. I'd never really had that. Like I grew up, out west and mainly had friends who were boys growing up. I had a lot of broken bones playing sport on a lot of boys' teams. Just that experience of the conversations and the having them to grow up with. I actually, in year 12, I spent the holidays out at my friend Rosie's place and her family are out here at Warrialda. and I see them now because they're not that far away from where we've ended up and their son... Bill actually carts for us sometimes at harvest and I always find it really interesting how small rural Australia is.
1: Mm. It is so small and I think that intimacy is such a draw card the community but then you went from a very small community to your gap year you went overseas to India which could not be more of a stark polar opposite what was that like heading over there as a wide-eyed small country gal?
0: Oh, gosh, I could not have been more naive. My mother always jokes, and this is an exaggeration, but not by much, that I hadn't crossed the road on my own yet until I went to (laughs) India, which is a total fib. I had crossed the road on my own, but I, I don't think I'd been further than Victoria. And I went on a pilgrimage with another group of kids from Australia. I think there was probably 70 of us. It was uber confronting. I remember calling mum from a phone box and there was a dead goat hanging up from the outside of the phone box being butchered while I was in the phone box. <laughs> and it, Calcutta just smells really strongly of pollution and people and then all of the spices and wonderful smells mixed in, but it was just really incredible culture shock for someone who'd lived a really insular life mm. up until then.
1: When the um, umbilical cord was still well and truly fastened.
0: yes especially according to my mother uh yeah India really just opened my eyes to how much I wanted to see and how much I've always been fascinated by people and knowing people's story and I just realized how varied people's stories could be up until that point I'd probably only seen a certain amount of people and and that just completely opened my eyes to what was out there
1: what were you doing over there
0: so we were volunteering in the homes of Mother Teresa and I was probably one of the older uh, volunteers that was over there. So I was in Caligat, the home of the destitute shoot and dying and I was also in one of the orphanages. So I did a lot of the medical attention because I was probably one of the older ones helping the nurses that were there. I also played with the kids and, you know, just... When you're there with those children, your only job is to be present and make them feel special, and mm. it's really hard because next month there's going to be another person going in and making them feel special. So you have to understand that you—it's not about you in any way, shape, or form. And everything you do when you're over there has to be about what you're giving. Mm. It's not no no part of what you were doing uh, is in taking away from that.
1: We'll be back with Grace in just a moment. But first, a message from our sponsor. There's been a few silver linings that have sprung from the unprecedented year that is 2020, and I think the focus on domestic travel is one of them. As the borders start to relax, it's such a gorgeous opportunity to explore our backyard. One of the places on my bucket list are the Misty View Cottages, nestled in the hinterland of the Sunshine Coast. Hosts, Tony and Shell, have crafted the perfect couple's retreat, far from the bustle of crowds. With unsurpassed views of Lake Baroon, there are two types of cottages offering the ideal escape. Enjoy the seclusion of the Lake Cottage with your own private heated plunge pool, or choose from one of three Lakeview Spa Cottages and sip wine from your couple's spa. <laughs> what a treat. If you book directly with Tony and Shell at mystiview.com.au and mention the Grazie Her podcast, a bottle of Granite Ridge wines will be waiting for you on arrival. Well, after such a whirlwind trip, you decided to defer law uh, at Sydney. Uh, Why did you choose to do that?
0: Because I think I had chosen law because my teachers thought that I was a good arguer and a good communicator and that probably wasn't enough of a reason to become a lawyer. And I didn't know enough about myself or the world to know where my place was going to be in it yet.
1: So what did you do next?
0: I had been home from India for a couple of weeks. And you've got to remember, so I went from being very naive to seeing some really atrocious... Sad, eye opening things. And I came back and I found it really hard to reacclimate with friends that were having boy troubles or, Mm. oh, I didn't get into that uni or that kind of thing. And I booked myself a ticket to England and I got myself a nannying job, which my mum was sure I was going to be like sold into child slave labour or something at the <laughs> other end which she's very upset but I just well I got so lucky so I was a nanny in Cambridge for a year for one little girl and they were the best family they were actually a cropping farming family and I wish I'd paid more attention to the fact that I was in England living on a farm where they were growing wheat but I just didn't pay attention to that and they had an indoor swimming pool so I taught swimming lessons and that's how I made all my really good cash for that year that let me go to London on the weekend and see my friends, travel through Europe.
1: And then coming home, what were what did you decide to do?
0: I was actually at the pub in Armadale with some of my friends and I decided I wanted to be a journalist and I wanted to tell stories. And I don't know why I hadn't realised that because I'd been writing stories when I was a kid. I won my first writing award when I was like eight. and. I decided I wanted to go somewhere warm because I'd been living in Gyra and Armadale for eight years and then I'd gone to England and that was my thinking was that simple. So the next day I applied to Griffith University on the Gold Coast and I applied for a Bachelor of Communications and moved with two of my friends who were also from Gyra <laughs> up there to study.
1: What were those years like? I understand that you got into modelling and, and were scouted and, and how did that kind of um, start your career trajectory into the fashion world?
0: I think the modelling was just a really good part-time job, total B-level model. I was lucky to work for, walk for Alex Perry and Wayne Cooper and some great names. But for the most part, it was lookbook shoots or I was a fit model for a lot of swimwear companies. A lot of swimwear companies are based out of the Gold Coast. So you literally just stand there for hours and have bikinis fitted to you before they send them off for production. So it's not entirely all that glamorous, but it opened me up to a pretty incredible world mm. and I was offered opportunities to MC events and I got over my public speaking fears and I met athletes and politicians and cuz it's incredible who go to fashion weeks and to those kind of events and I think that gave me a lot of confidence. Not so much probably the modelling, but the, the conversations in the rooms I ended up in. There's a lot of incredible networking events and things that happen up on the Gold Coast and in Brisbane. And I was really lucky from a really young age to land in some of those rooms I was working. I'd often be modelling in a parade and I'd get to hear these fascinating speakers for free. And I thought, this is great. And so after that, I really always tried to put myself in a room where I could learn from people who were smarter than me.
1: Yeah. And what were some of the takeaways from that period?
0: That I love clothes. (laughs) (laughs) But in in the, so I went on to work in fashion after that. I had an internship at Channel 9. I was modelling and I was at uni. It was really, really hard to go to Channel 9 one or two days a week, work as a journalist and then go back to class and feel like I was going back what I'd just spent two years learning at Channel 9 and I was too immature to see the long-term plan in that. And in my third year, I was offered a job as a fashion presenter for International Fashion Channel, Fashion One. Mm-hmm. And so I was literally my job. It seems ridiculous now to... Travel around to fashion weeks and interview supermodels and designers and makeup artists and watch the shows and interview guests. That was my job for two years and it was launches too and um, jewellery events, all those kind of things.
1: You know, from an outside perspective, the fashion world seems um, very inaccessible and glamorous. And, and there are also these lots of preconceived notions of of what the people are like within the industry. What was your experience of, of the people and the models and, and I guess the culture of the industry?
0: Well, I think a lot of the girls actually lived in a model house for a while. And those girls are still my really good friends now. Like they are brilliant, brilliant women. They're all so beautiful and so intelligent and like they're running themselves as businesses. So they have to be quite savvy and there's no competition, which I found was truly extraordinary, Mm. but the fashion industry on the whole, that's just a business. They are just people in there working really hard to take whatever it is that they've creatively come up with and take it into the world. And what We on the outside see is the tiniest little moment where maybe they're showcasing that thing they've worked on all year or maybe they're celebrating it at an after party and we conflate that with what they do on the whole and it's just not the case. I think the fashion industry, if that's like looking at farming and seeing us at Harvest, whipping that crop off and grabbing a cold beer and going, Oh, that looks so, that looks wonderful. I'm going to be a farmer. I think it's, we don't, we don't really know how hard any industry is until we walk a mile in anybody else's shoes.
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, you went from, um, you know, covering fashion week in Fiji and Melbourne and Sydney and it all sounds so fab. How did you then, start your foray back into regional journalism and do that as oprah would call it the full circle moment
0: yes the full circle to the gundawindi argus which is where i ended up i
1: <laughs> the step grace
0: I, yeah well i i really was having this like i was deeply uncomfortable i was in sydney and i was uncomfortable in myself i felt like i had so much more to offer and i was only using a tiny percent of who i was and I had a little blog at the time and I'd put just things that I was thinking about, just musings up there. And I thought nobody ever read them and I put them out on Twitter. And one day I was sitting in Bondi and there were two men talking about 2014. There, was, there were areas that were in drought and these two men were talking about the government's bailout of farmers. And their conversation was disgusting. And gosh, I'd been out of rural Australia for a while, but even I knew that they were so off base and I just wish that they had had more information and been better informed to have a better understanding. And I I wrote this blog about it and it was just shared everywhere, which is extraordinary to me how people even find these things. Mm. And the head of NFF, Fiona Simpson, was one of the people who retweeted me. And she contacted me and she said, there's this event on tonight at the NAB building, this big building in Sydney, uh, the New South Wales Farmers Writers event, and I think you should go. And she gave me the contact of the guest speaker that day. And I went and I was in this room with people from MLA and the land and people from grain growers. And I just remember thinking this is the room I want to be in. But then also thinking, I've gone so far up a ladder, am I going to jump to a completely different ladder, have to start down the bottom and work my way back up that ladder? And what does even that ladder look like in rural journalism? Like, where is that ladder taking you to? And I came home to visit my parents, my mum's a school principal, just south of the border at the Toomala Mission, and did some cattle work with my stepdad and spent some time in Gundy and there was a job application, job availability at the Gundawini artists and mum came in, she's like, oh my God, you've got to do this. And I thought, gosh, they're not going to hire me mum. I am a fashion journalist, like, but I thought, oh, what the heck? This is a great town. It's got a great coffee shop, great dress shops, like I can move here." And so I applied and I got accepted for interview and I thought, oh, cool. And Jonesy, who's this great, really rusted-on editor in at the Gundawindi Argus, I'm in there with this interview and I had a few stories and a few blogs to give in, but for the most part, I'm interviewing for this rural journalist position with Fashion Week videos with Tony Matichewski and (laughs) Alex Perry and Miranda Kerr. Very relevant. (laughs) And just thinking, that I thought, oh gosh, I'll attach it because this is the only thing I have that shows that I'm an effective communicator. And gosh, no, I must, just, either they had no other applications or I said <laughs> something right in that interview because he gave me the job and I fell madly in love with Gundawindi. Like it was a deep love affair. I was on the races for, on the committee for the picnic races and I helped some friends with the Gundawindi polo and, a few years in, four friends and I threw a ball and we thought, oh, you know, no one's thrown a ball in a while. We'll, we'll, we'll raise money for the ladies who uh, do the tie up the black dog in Gundawindi. We thought, wow, we'll raise some money for them and we'll sell 160 tickets and, you know, if they don't all sell, it's not a big deal. And in the first two days, our 160 tickets sold out and then we we're like, oh, we'll just add another 100 and then another 100. It ended up being 370 people and at the time, all the people that should have bought tickets, like my then boyfriend, David, had to call me in the week and lead up to the ball and be like, I don't have a ticket. And so at that point, you had to pay for your ticket, but you also had to come and help us set up. So if you were one of those people that were late to the game, you had to come and help set up and pack down. And that town just fills me up even to this day. It's been really hard being cut off from it this year. There is so much going on there. Like there are so many entrepreneurs. There's a, cha- a children's label, Love Henry. There is a thriving fashion label in Gundawindi Cotton. There, oh, Julia Telford, who is a business coach there, supports so many businesses. There's all of the wonderful Indigenous cultures that that is there. It really, oh, I couldn't have found a better place to land.
1: And after having such, how old were you at this stage?
0: 24
1: or 23, I think. Yeah, okay. So you'd spent five years or so kind of gallivanting and travelling around but not really finding your place. What was it like to land and find that tribe?
0: Oh, amazing. I don't think I've ever been so, like, just felt welcome. It is a really welcoming town. And I guess too, I'd been in boarding obviously and then gone away overseas and then another four years out in the world. And I hadn't seen my family much. So all of a sudden, I was having this opportunity to kind of sit down and have dinner with my mum and reconnect with her in a way that I hadn't had since I was probably 14 or probably mm-hmm. had never had honestly, cause I was a 14 year old girl and who has that relationship with their mum when they're a 14 year old girl. <laughs> and I volunteered at her school a lot, which was really beautiful. Um, the Tumla mission is a really unique place that not a lot of people know about or get to experience. And I have a beautiful relationship with a lot of people out there. Yeah. it. My, like I, it, it's like, a a love of my life gundy i get goosebumps thinking about it
1: well it's also a place where you met the other love of your life david how did you guys (laughs) meet
0: we were at the Gundawini emus rugby i went with my stepdad (laughs) yeah that's they're all great it's either got to be the races or the rugby you don't have a lot of options i was with my stepdad and my little cousin sam and I was certainly not looking to meet anybody. I was out with my family. And he was actually talking to Wes, my stepdad. And then all of a sudden he was just at dinner with us, having dinner with my family. And he, his opening line was something like, hi, I'm David. Our grandfathers went to America together on a versatile tractor tour in the 70s. Classic oh, country nice.
1: pickup <laughs> line.
0: <laughs> that's lovely. But he was just or is just something else. He's very traditional, has very traditional values, is very old school. He's polite to telemarketers. When we're leaving somewhere, he'll say cheerio like his granddad does. (laughs) He just, I hadn't met anybody like him. He was kind of, I think, mum, actually, actually, I do believe mum dreamed David up. She thought, I want my daughter to move back to the country and I wanted to have a charming, kind, traditional husband. And then, where David appeared?
1: The manifestation of all mothers everywhere.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, for a long time. Well, I remember Mum and my stepdad were setting me down in the Gyra pub and saying, Look, I think it's about time you you think about where you want to be in life. Where do you want to be? I thought, I don't know. I don't know where I want to be tomorrow, let alone where I want to be in life. So they were really happy when I came to Gundawindi and really I just set myself in very early on as this is a good place and I'm really happy to be here. I don't feel the need to go anywhere anytime soon.
1: So what kind of drove that decision to move to Domain? In 2016,
0: it was the changes with Fairfax, where all of a sudden the, there was no longer editors at every paper. There was one editor for say three or four local papers, and the cultures changed at the papers. And I was sent to Maury as a senior journalist, and that paper just had a very different culture. Because I was single and young, I was being shipped around a lot and living in hotels a lot, filling in for leave positions, and We were actually in Portugal and I just thought, no, this is not what I came home here to do. I came home here, like I came back to the country to do work that I'm proud of. And David said, well, I really want you to move in with me. I don't want you to go. I want you to give us a try. And if after a couple of months you were happy and you want to stay here, great. If we're happy and you want to go, then we will figure that out together. So I moved in here and started freelancing and we just I really didn't realize how much the farm would take over my life too I guess Mm. and probably six months into freelancing I did my first story for Gracie Hair it was David and I went to I think it was my Scotland story David and I went to Scotland And I did a travel story and I'd done a story on the title the Black Dog Ladies and a few feature stories and things like that. And that was just a dream. Like even that to me, just being able to do those stories, I felt so blessed.
1: And so as someone who is so passionate about regional Australia, what's one of the most important messages that you want to perpetrate on a a greater scale or some misconceptions that you'd really like to tackle about regional and rural Australia? those that aren't in it
0: regional australia is full of possibilities i think the way that things have evolved with technology that this is the place for people to be if they want to have that career that they've always wanted but they also want to have some space and some freedom and some quality of life especially after Corona. Like I, I can't think of a time where space and freedom have been more highly valued than now. Mm. This is the place to be. That's my message. If you <laughs> don't think that you can do whatever you want to do from the bush, I promise you that you can, because I'm a fashion stylist and brands send me their garments from all across Australia to my farm and I go and style editorials. So you can do whatever it is that you want to do from rural Australia.
1: And you style them so beautifully, you know, flicking through your Insta grid. It's just really inspiring how you see the, and and represent farming and, and country life. It's just beautiful. I have to ask, who takes your photos? Is David behind the lens here? Oh. <laughs>
0: He is. David has, and he won't be shy in telling you, a really good eye for photography. Is he an Instagram husband of all time? Oh, he is. And when we went to Italy for a friend's wedding a couple of years ago, my friend Mel was very excited that David was coming because her Insta husband just wasn't cutting the mustard. She was very excited to use mine. (laughs) So
1: (laughs) candid. So he takes all those beautiful shots for your editorials and things like that.
0: Well, he actually, so if I'm in them, yes, he's taken them. So this year during that first really strict lockdown when we couldn't even talk to our neighbours, Claire and I would already organised our autumn shoot. And so we had all the garments here and we couldn't do anything. So it was actually during planting. David stopped the planner for half an hour jumped off which is a sign of love ladies if your husband will get off the planter in the middle of a deadline and come and photograph a fashion editorial for you that's when you know you've picked a good one and the spray rig driver's driving past and the neighbors are going past and god it was so embarrassing but they were beautiful he did such a good job so beautiful and it was oh and it was special because we'll be able to say to our kids one day You know, in that pandemic that you've learned about at school, see these photos, Dad took these of Mum, you know, during the middle of that pandemic.
1: So wonderful. So now that you've had your harvest and you've got some crops off and hopefully 2021 will settle down a little bit, you know, what does the next little while hold for you guys?
0: The first thing for me, well, actually, I have said I will take photos for the local bush preschools around here. So for the next week, I'm going around taking their school photos for all the local bush preschools around this little region. (laughs) But then I have a fashion shoot for a week in Byron Bay, which I'm very excited about for Gundy Cotton. Um, They are one of just my favorite clients because, well, first off, Claire. So Claire gave me that first opportunity when she said to me, you know, she literally just emailed me and said, do you think if I sent you clothes, you could style and shoot a fashion editorial? And in my head, I'm like, no, 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 no. And of course I said, yes, yes, I, I, I can do that. Of course I can do that. And from that one editorial, I've just been booked solidly. I'll never be able to thank Claire enough for those opportunities. And one of the first clients was Gunda Windy Cotton. they Head designer, Marianne, actually lives in Sydney and she got sent a copy of Grazy Hair and she opened it up and she said, you know, this girl's local. She can do this. She can shoot and style our campaigns. And they'd been getting all of their photography done in Brisbane and we use models and makeup artists. Everybody else comes from Brisbane. And it's extraordinary to me that Marianne and Sam, the owner of Gundawindi Cotton, gave me that opportunity because it's the imagery and the footprint for their brand that everybody sees for the next six months and everything that they do. And they've gone online this year and it's been really great to see how important my imagery has been to how their business has evolved throughout the year. I think they're looking to double their turnover for this year after going online, which is extraordinary. Yeah.
1: So fabulous.
0: So lucky to be a part of that. Yeah. So lucky.
1: You know, farming, there's no surety. There's definitely no certainty with what the next six months hold. But for now, you've got grain in the shed. Things are feeling pretty good. How do you feel?
0: I feel really good. Like, I feel really excited. Today's our last day of harvest. It's been a nervy couple of days. It's 42 degrees and you're harvesting chickpeas. There's always a huge fire risk. So I've been very nervy, but... Today will hopefully be our cutout party, either, you know, pizza and beer in the paddock or (laughs) we might take the boys into town to the pub, I don't know. But David and I are going to and we're really looking forward to just take some time together and just be and be happy and focus on starting a family and really just enjoy living on domain because we've fought so hard and given so much to be here.
1: Mm. You deserve all of the happiness and all of the rain. So thank you so much, Grace, for such a beautiful chat.
0: Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, Oh, emotional time. The (laughs) The drought is the pit. It makes everybody cry. I think it is. it's, It's relief. It's, I, 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 I swear today, it's just like today will be the last of the grain and I'm just relieved. For me, for my husband, for the community, our community is full again. Our town is busy. It's, you just couldn't ask for anything more out here. It's the best life. Like it is the best life. And we could see that even in the worst days, we could see that it was the best life. And now we just live to farm another day.
1: <laughs> best, best ending ever. <laughs> I felt recharged after yarning with Grace her zest for life is infectious and we ended up nattering away for nearly an hour after I pressed stop on the recording. While she insists that her husband calls her Zorbet Dundee because she's rocks around the farm in a combo of activewear, RB sellers and her Akubra, I find her stylish eye on Instagram a total inspiration and can't wait to see what she cooks up next. We'll pop Grace's Instagram and where you can follow her work in our show notes so you can join the journey. It has been such a pleasure having you along for today's episode. Thank you so much for your continual support. Connect with us on Instagram or send us a pic of where you're listening from. We're an independent podcast, and so every time you share our work, it helps us to keep going. You can also leave a cheeky review, which helps others find us. Until next time, have a magic week. This is a Grazy Her podcast produced by Manson and Company.